Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Richard Holloway, and it's my pleasure, my honor to chair this event. Um, a few notices first. Will you please make sure your mobile phones are off? Um, and the pattern of the event will be that after I've introduced Julian, he'll then read from his book for about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, then he and I will have a conversation about it, and then it's um, over to you. There will be wandering mics, and I'll chair the Q&A. Julian Barnes was born in Leicester in 1946. He is the author of two books of stories, two collections of essays, a translation of Daudet's and the Land of Pain, and nine novels. His most recent work, the one we'll discuss today, like many of the best books written, is unclassifiable. It's not an autobiography, yet it contains biographical material. It's not philosophy, but it's highly philosophical. It's not about death and the dread of death, yet it's very funny and weirdly cheering. It's called Nothing to be Frightened of, and believe that if you like. Welcome to <laughs> Julian Barnes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and first of all, in case anyone is as fascinated as I am by it, the result of the women's road race was that N Nicole Cook won a gold medal. Um, I'm going to start by reading the first four or five pages of Nothing to be Frightened of. Um, it's a book which moves between memoir and essay. Um, it's about uh, family and death and religion and um, writers and artists' response to all these matters. Um, but it begins um, with my grandparents and my brother. And the first five pages introduce some of the themes of the book. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That's what I say when the question is put. I asked my brother, who has taught philosophy at Oxford, Geneva, and the Sorbonne, what he thought of such a statement, without revealing that it was my own. He replied with a single word, soppy. <laughs> the person to begin with is my maternal grandmother, Nellie Louisa Skoltok, née Machin. She was a teacher in Shropshire until she married my grandfather, Bert Skoltok. Not Bertram, not Albert, just Bert so christened, so called, so cremated. He was a headmaster with a certain mechanical dash to him, a motorcycle and sidecar man, then owner of a Lanchester, then in retirement, driver, driver of a rather pompously sporty Triumph Roadster with a three-person bench seat in front and two bucket seats when the top was down. By the time I knew them, my grandparents had come south to be near their only child. Grandma went to the Women's Institute. She pickled and bottled. She plucked and roasted the chickens and geese that Grandpa raised. She was petite, outwardly unopinionated, and had the thickened knuckles of old age. She needed soap to get her wedding ring off. Their wardrobe was full of home-knitted cardigans, Grandpa's tending to feature more masculine cable stitch. They had regular appointments with the chiropodist, and were of that generation advised by dentists to have all their teeth out in one go. <laughs> this was a normal rite of passage then, from being rickety nashered to fully porcelain <laughs> in one leap 
to all that buckle sliding and clacking, to social embarrassment and the foaming glass on the bedside table. <laughs> the change from teeth to dentures struck my brother and me as both grave and ribald. But my grandmother's life had contained another enormous change, never alluded to in her presence. Nellie Louisa Machin, daughter of a labourer in a chemical works, had been brought up a Methodist, while the Skoltocks were Church of England. At some point in her young adulthood, my grandmother had suddenly lost her faith and, in the smooth narration of family law, found a replacement, socialism. I have no idea how strong her religious faith had been or what her family's politics were. All I know is that she once stood for the local council as a socialist and was defeated. By the time I knew her in the 1950s, she had progressed to being a communist. She must have been one of the, few, the very few old-age pensioners in suburban Buckinghamshire who took, who took the daily worker. <laughs> and, and, so, and so my brother and I insisted to one another, fiddled the housekeeping to send donations to the newspaper's fighting fund. In the late 1950s, the Sino-Soviet schism took place and communists worldwide were obliged to choose between Moscow and Peking. For most of the European faithful, this was not a difficult decision, nor was it for the daily worker, which received funding as well as directives from Moscow. My grandmother, who had never been abroad in her life, who lived in genteel bungalowdom, decided for undisclosed re reasons to throw in her lot with the Chinese. I welcomed this mysterious decision with blunt self-interest since her worker was now supplemented by China Reconstructs, a heretical magazine posted direct from the distant continent. Grandma would save me the stamps from the biscuity envelopes. These tended to celebrate industrial achievement, bridges, hydroelectric dams, lorries rolling off production lines, or else show various breeds of peaceful dove. My grandfather was a brill cream man, and the anti-macassar on his Parker Knoll armchair, a high-backed number with wings for him to snooze against, wasn't merely decorative. His hair had whitened sooner than grandma's. He had a clipped military moustache, a metal-stemmed pipe, and a tobacco pouch which distended his cardigan pocket. He also wore a chunky hearing aid, another aspect of the adult world, or rather, the world on the farther side of adulthood, which my brother and I liked to mock. Beg pardon, we would shout satirically at one another, <laughs> cupping hands to ears. Both of us used to look forward to the prized moment when our grandmother's stomach would rumble loudly enough for Grandpa to be roused from his deafness into, into the inquiry, telephone, Ma? <laughs> An embarrassed grunt later, they would go back to their newspapers. <coughs> Grandpa, in his male armchair, deaf aid occasionally whistling and pipe making a hubble-bubble noise as he sucked on it, would shake his head over the Daily Express, which described to him a world where truth and justice were constantly imperiled by the communist threat. In her softer female armchair, in the red corner, Grandma would tut-tut away over the Daily Worker, which described to her a world where truth and justice, in their updated versions, were constantly imperiled by capitalism and imperialism. Our mother, 
and was christened Kathleen Mabel. She hated the Mabel and complained about it to Grandpa, whose explanation was that he had once known a very nice girl called Mabel. <laughs> I have no idea about the progress or regress of her religious beliefs, although I own her prayer book, bound together with hymns ancient and modern in soft brown suede, each volume signed in surprising green ink with her name and the date, December 25th, 1932. And this is written, Deck, colon, 25th, and exactly underneath the TH is a, is a full stop, 1932, full stop. I admire her punctuation, two full stops and a colon, with the stop beneath the TH placed exactly between the two letters. You don't get punctuation like that nowadays. <laughs> In my childhood, the three unmentionable subjects were the traditional ones, religion, politics, and sex. By the time my mother and I came to discuss these matters, the first two, that is, the third being permanently off the agenda, she was true blue in politics, as I guess she always had been. As for religion, she told me firmly that she didn't want any of that mumbo-jumbo at her funeral. So when the undertaker asked if I wanted the religious symbols removed from the crematorium wall, I told him I thought this is what she would have wanted. The past conditional, by the way, is a tense of which my brother is highly suspicious. Waiting for the funeral to start, we had not an argument, this would have been against all family tradition, but an exchange which demonstrated that if I am a rationalist by my own standards, I am a fairly feeble one by his. When our mother was first incapacitated by a stroke, she happily agreed that her granddaughter C should have the use of her car. This was the last of a long sequence of Renaults, the mark to which she had maintained a francophiliac loyalty over four decades. Standing with my brother in the crematorium car park, I was looking out for the familiar French silhouette when my niece arrived at the wheel of her boyfriend R's car. I observed mildly, I'm sure, I think Ma would have wanted C to come in her car. My brother, just as mildly, took logical exception to this. He pointed out that there are the wants of the dead, i.e. things which people now dead once wanted, and there are hypothetical wants, i.e. things which people would or might have wanted. What mother would have wanted was a combination of the two, a hypothetical want of the dead, and therefore doubly questionable. <clears throat> we can only do what we want, he explained. To indulge the maternal hypothetical was as irrational as if he were now to pay attention to his own past desires. I proposed in reply that we should try to do what she would have wanted, A, because we have to do something, and that something, unless we simply left her body to rot in the back garden, involves choices, and B, because we hope that when we die, others will do what we in our turn would have wanted. I see my brother infrequently, and so I'm often startled by the way in which his mind works. But he is quite genuine in what he says. As I drove him back to London after the funeral, we had a, to me, even more peculiar exchange about my niece and her boyfriend. They had been together a long time, though during a period of estrangement, C had taken up with another man. My brother and his wife had instantly disliked this interloper, and my sister had apparently taken a mere 10 minutes to sort him out. 
I didn't ask the, ma the manner of the sorting out. Instead, I asked, but you approve of R? It's irrelevant, my brother replied, whether or not I approve of R. No, it's not. C might want you to approve of him. On the contrary, he said, she might want me not to approve of him. <laughs> but either way, it's not irrelevant to her whether or not you approve or disapprove. He thought this over for a moment. You're right, he said. You can, you can perhaps tell from these exchanges that he is the elder brother. <laughs> Uh, Julian, thanks. Um, your book is an exploration of death, religion, and the family, and I'd like to do it in reverse order. Fine. And start with the family. Um, reading your book, Larkin's This Be the Day, came inevitably to mind, but I won't quote it on a Sunday morning to an Edinburgh audience. Um, <laughs> you liked your father, but seem hardly ever to have spoken to him. You disliked your mother, yet it was her stoicism at the end that tore at your heart. Can you tell us about them and why you've chosen now to write about them uh, so closely and intimately in this fascinating book? Yes, um, as the Larkin poem begins, they you up your mum and dad. They, they muck you up, they is the way it's bowdlerized in, in no, Presbyterian I don't believe in bowdlerization. I prefer yes, right, yeah, si yeah. four silent <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, hyphens. Your mum and dad, they may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. <laughs> but they were mmmed up in their turn by old-style fools in hats and coats who half the time are soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and, and don't, don't any have any kids yourself. yourself. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, it's, it's a wonderful poem, uh, but it doesn't really express my... Um, family life. I, I, I wouldn't say that they mucked me up. I think they did their best. And, um, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily, uh, after you come out of infancy and early childhood, um, love them or get on with them. And I had a rather bifurcated um, relationship with them. I mean, I, I, I was very fond of my father, who was a very quiet, decent, liberal man. Um, and uh, who, in my view, was rather ground down by the presence of my mother, who um, filled me a lot of the time with exasperation, yes. She knew exactly, she had very firm views about things, which is useful when you're a child, and then becomes sort of frustrating in adolescence, and then becomes stultifying in adulthood. Uh, that is, if these firm opinions are ones you don't agree with. <laughs> um, and I don't think we agreed about very much, no. Um, that scene in the hospital at the end, yes. which wrenched your heart and yes. mine when you yes. described it. Yes, yes. Well, um, my mother, uh, I mean, I sort of, my, my, my brother lives in France. Um, he's a philosophical Philosophically, he's an anarchist, not politically. Philosophically, he is. So he has this ambition to live nowhere. So he's sort of... <laughs> kind of difficult. It's kind of, it's kind of difficult. But, you know, he was at Oxford um, all his life, to, well, till he was 50. And he then took a job in Geneva, moved his bank account to the Channel Islands, and moved to a department of France called the Creuse. 
I was once trying to explain this to a French, a sophisticated French diplomat. And I said, you know, my brother, you see, he's this sort of, he's sort of anarchist, really. He, he has an ambition to live nowhere. And the guy said, well, where does he live? I said, he lives in the Creuse. And there was a sort of Parisian chuckle at this. And he says, then he has achieved his ambition. He lives nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, my, my, my brother was, uh, was in France and, and, there, and handed over my mother's dying to me quite um, happily, I think. Um, and um, my, my father, uh, they both had a series of strokes, but um, my mother's knowing her was more efficient, her dying was more efficiently done, if one can say that, um, over a period of uh, five, six months or something like that, whereas my father was reduced gradually over a period of five or six years. Um, and my mother was not just stoic, but at times I thought heroic in her dying. And the moment which you allude to came, um, she, had a, she had a major stroke, she was taken to hospital, and she was given um, physiotherapy. Um, and she, she looked at her own condition. Uh, her speech was badly impaired. A lot of what she said to me, she would, she would be able to make, t make a great effort and say full sentences. She said, she would say, do you have any trouble comprehending me? And the comprehending would come out perfectly. And I would say, uh, no, Ma, I don't, I don't have any trouble understanding you. It's just that occasionally some of the things you say don't quite add up. And she, being my mother, said, ha, I'm quite loopy, she said. Uh, which is wonderful because it was sort of carrying on correcting mm. your son, even though he's now in his late 40s and actually explaining, is sort of running your life and that sort of thing. But um, I remember her in hospital sitting in a green dress in a wheelchair and sort of canted over by the side of her bed. And she, was, she got very cross as well. She used to, um, she got very, very cross with me for standing her up on the tennis court. This was when she was in her wheelchair. This, this was part of her delusions mm. and wouldn't speak to me because I had not turned up for tennis. Stuff like that. I mean, um, one day I went to the hospital and she was cross with me because she knew that I was going to see the doctor about her condition. Um, and um, I went off. I saw the doctor. The doctor said, in effect, the next stroke will kill her. I thought, how do I disguise this? How do I disguise it from my face? How do I disguise it from my voice? When I go back and say something like, you know, the doctor says you're, you'll pull through or whatever you say, you know. But my mother was ahead of me and um, one of her arms didn't work at all. She thought it ought to be amputated. That was her view. It was useless. This thing was useless. It had let her down. Um, so I came around the corner of the hospital ward and was sort of still arranging my face and my thoughts. And I saw my mother beadily catch my eye. And with her at one good arm, she reached out and did that. And uh, it was the most admirable and the most, most sort of heart-wrenching thing I ever saw her do. Um. Your father um, described your brother as cleverer than you, the, the cleverer of the two, but yes, then he hastily added, but you were an all-rounder. Yeah, that was his sop to me. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Did yeah, you resent yeah. that? Um, 
I think I, I, I think I recognized it as true. My brother is certainly cleverer than me. My brother is cleverer than almost anyone I know. Mm. He sounds frightening in this. I mean, yeah, I get on with him much better now. He used to be, he used to be a bit frightening. He used to be a bit putting me, he used to put me down a lot. Does, does everything get challenged, everything you say? Or, or are, well, do things occasionally you get see, through? The thing, the thing about, uh, well, th things do occasionally get through. Like he did see that I was right about whether or not it mattered to his daughter whether or not he liked her boyfriend. But things have to go through um, a sort of um, you know, logical Moulinex or something with <coughs> him first. You, you, you say to him, I mean, there's a bit, there's a bit later on in the book where, um, I, where I ask him to explain why he thinks I don't believe in God, but I miss him, is soppy. Mm -hmm. And he turns it into, he, he analyzes it in a philosophical way, and all of a sudden he's talking about um, he can just about understand it as a way of saying something like, um, I don't believe in yetis, but I miss them. And then he turns God, with a capital G, into gods in a small letter. And then there's another, another, another sort of logical reordering of what I thought I had said in his true philosophical terms. And then at the end he says, but, you know, I don't sort of, this, it is sloppy and, I, and I'm quite happy with the way things are, or something like that. Um, but he isn't doing it aggressively. Um, he just can't help He probably himself. did it when I, when, I was probably, when I was 10 or something like that. Yeah. He probably, there was probably some aggression to him. This is, this is how he is and how he thinks. And, and everything that you feed in, you know, he admits he, hasn't, he has almost no small talk. He can only do large talk. Mm -hmm. and, and so... <laughs> Very large talk. Um, which is, you know, I, mean, I, I yeah. quite like it in, in small doses. Um, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't marry my brother. Uh, well, that's against the law anyway. Let's, let's, um, <laughs> I'm sure it's legal yeah. in some states. It probably is. It's probably, and he uh, will know which one. Yeah, yeah, it's probably obligatory in some states. Well, well let's go back to this soppy um, uh, statement that you made, yes. uh, you don't believe in God, but you miss him. Yes. Uh, does yes. that suggest you once uh, had him or knew him or did believe in him, and then he evaporated like the Cheshire cat, or is it, what, what, no. what does it mean? I, I never, <coughs> I, I never, I was, my, my religion sort of disappeared in my family at about the, at my grandparents' level, I think. Um, Certainly, I was not brought up in any religious way at all. I mean, there were church, so there were services at school, mm -hmm. but I never, I've never in my life been to a regular church service. I mean, I do baptisms, funerals, and marriages, mm -hmm. and I go into church, churches a lot, to you know, for architectural reasons and to get a sense of what Englishness or Scottishness or Frenchness once was which still remains in a Larkinish way, sort of concentrated mm. there, place where people mm. will forever be going in to be serious, place where serious thoughts were had, and so on. Um, but um, I never, I mean, as you're brought, even so, you, you're aware that some people believe in God when you go to church, when you go to school, and you have, a, you know, there'll be a, I don't know, there wasn't a chaplain, but there were prayers and stuff like that. And, um, so you're aware of the, of, the, of, the, of the possibility of God, say, for, but mainly for other people. But I never believed him, in him in such a way as to then expel him, really. Mm -hmm. But I suppose if you 
ask me what I, I mean. I, I, I mean three things, really. I think there's a, there's a moment of active, of sort of active um, realization of missing in the face of great art, great religious mm -hmm. art, music, painting, architecture. You know, what would it have been like? What, what would it be like to listen to that Bach cantata, believing that the text is, is, is absolutely the truth about life? Or see that Rembrandt etching and think this is a true story being recounted. Um, going to that cathedral, I mean, imagine what it must have been like to go in to one of those great Gothic cathedrals for the first time when they were being finished. Um, and so it's a sort of, I don't know, it may be a, a rather sort of cheap nostalgia, but it's a sort of, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a missing of the, what must be in some ways the full experience of mm -hmm. great works of art. Um, the other thing I mean by it is that um, now that we've sort of, many people, most people in this country have shrugged off God, um, the notion that, that human life was somehow an anteroom or a preparation or a test or a trial and that there was something bigger than it led on to mm -hmm. made life both more trivial and grander. More dramatic. And more dramatic. Mm. And, and, um, and, and, uh, and now we are allowed, God has been taken out of the equation, and you are now allowed to grow to our full height. But that height often strikes me as quite dwarfish. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the third thing I, I mean is something that um, I wasn't quite aware that I believed and felt until um, I read it in... Wittgenstein's notebooks, where he says, or, or it's, I think it was a little biography of Wittgenstein, where he says something like, um, the, a guy, a biographer says that he, Wittgenstein didn't really believe, but uh, he believed in the possibility of believing, or something like that. Again, sounds rather, rather like my brother, except my brother wouldn't believe in the possibility <laughs> of believing. He would feed that into his Moulinex. Um, um, but that what Wittgenstein was interested in in religion was the matter of judgment. And um, mm -hmm. I think that um, there is in us um, a, a very normal human desire uh, to, be, to be seen, to be seen for what we are, um, to be um, uh, approved of, um, to be judged. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't mean this in any masochistic way. We want to be judged and found okay. You know. Maybe even forgiven. Um, and I think that we, in the old days, um, yes, and maybe even forgiven. Um, you know, in the old days, uh, human love, um, you know, messy and inadequate as it sometimes is, was uh, a prequel. Um, and that, you know, human love was sort of being seen and being approved of and being judged and being found okay, that is if it went well, often not. Um, but that, you know, the platonic idea that this was a, this was a preview and mm -hmm. that, that and God would see everything more fully and, um, and, and, and would love us and judge us and forgive us. Um, and so that, if that's been taken out of the equation, then we're, we're, we're again, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting with our own resources and they sometimes seem inadequate resources. That, that um, sounds quite wistful, but there are bits in the book where you're a bit more 
angry at religion, and I wonder, I mean, you're not an evangelical atheist, because religion's in a very interesting situation at the moment. The, the mirror image of the Christian fundamentalists are the, the kind of fundamentalist atheists who um, splutter and foam at the mouth almost with the same intensity. What you've just said would suggest that you don't rate religion as totally toxic. You kind of miss some of the things that gave to humanity, but you, you don't buy them yourself. Well, if asked to choose between Richard Dawkins and uh, a Bible-bashing um, uh, Southern States uh, TV evangelist, I don't think there's any doubt about where I... It's no contest, is it? But um, there's a, there's a, interestingly, it, it, was, it was Robespierre um, who said it. He said, um, uh, uh, atheism is aristocratic, he said. Mm. And I think it's a very interesting uh, remark, especially coming from him, I mean, because he started off his career executing priests, and he ended up his career executing atheists, because first of all, he got rid of the Catholic Church, and then he instituted his new uh, religion of reason, which unfortunately wasn't a religion of great tolerance either. Um, I think there is something... Um, there is something in militant atheism which uh, is dogmatic and which is also um, unimaginative in terms of people's uh, human needs. Mm. I don't think that, you know, I don't, I don't believe that the, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in religion and I think organized religion often has done bad things, terrible things. But the individual human impulse towards there being something out there, let alone the individual human impulse which leads you to uh, belief in some sort of God or afterlife because you can't bear the idea that it's all going to end, mm. I find completely normal. And as, you know, as a writer, I'm a novelist after all. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I, if I thought that, that and, and, and have a, what percentage of people in the history of the world have believed in God or gods of some sort, 99.9 .9 or something like that, I don't know. Um, you know, unless you want to, unless you're prepared to go there imaginatively, then you're, you're cutting off a lot of, of your, of your novelistic understanding. So it's partly human and partly professional, I suppose. Um, let's move on to, um, to death. Oh, um, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, let's get on to death. Really cheers up. Um, yeah. I recently read, again, Margaret Yourcena's great book about Hadrian, partly because of the great exhibition that's on in London, Memoirs of yes. Hadrian. Yes. Uh, and the writing of this was inspired by something from Flaubert, your great um, hero. I mean, certainly someone you've written a fascinating yes. book about. Yes. Uh, let me read it. This is what he said. I find this a haunting quote. The melancholy of the antique world seems to me more profound than that of the moderns all of whom more or less imply that beyond the dark void lies immortality. But for the ancients, that black hole is infinity itself. Their dreams loom and vanish against a background of immutable ebony. No crying out, no convulsions, nothing but the fixity of a, of a pensive gaze. Just when the gods had ceased to be and the Christ had not yet come, there was a unique moment in history between Cicero and Marcus Aurelius when man stood alone. Nowhere else do I find that particular grandeur. 
And does that not perhaps describe mm. your own attitude to death, not so much fear as a kind of melancholy, uh, that we are on our own, there is nothing but us, and it's over um, when it's over, and you, given your particular temperament, can't but muse on that and be saddened by it, because uh, you talk a lot about the fear of death, yes. and I think we all dislike and fear some of the ways we might actually die. Ah, but I would distinguish the fear of death. I, what I mean by the fear of death is the fear of being dead. I, I wouldn't mind dying if I didn't end up dead at the end of it. Right. That, 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 that's always been my attitude to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I think generally people either fear dying or they fear death. Uh, though I have discovered in the course of writing this book that if you work at it hard enough, you probably can end up fearing both. Um, so I think I'm beginning to fear dying a bit more than I used to. But it's mainly, it's mainly fear of, of being dead, fear of, of your consciousness being obliterated forever. Um, There's that famous Larkin quote about that from Obad. Yes, um, not to be here, not to be anywhere, right. and soon, mm -hmm. nothing more terrible, nothing more true. Mm -hmm. He was our great melancholic and yeah. death expert. Mm -hmm. No, he, he was one, wonderful, yes. And you're not at all consoled by the thought that you won't know you're not there. No. <laughs> you no. think there'll be a residual bit of me say, damn it, I don't like this non-being. I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, um, we always say, well, we shall find out, knowing that in all certainty, in all probability, we won't find out, we won't get. I mean, um, you, you, it, it would be nice if there was some sort of residual consciousness floating around in our coffin or above our coffin saying, by the way, you were right, there is nothing, you know. But it's okay, it's okay, don't worry. Um, and the, 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 another great rationalist, A.C. Groening, says that's as rational as being annoyed about not having existed before you were born. But you don't get any comfort in that either, do you? Um, I, could, I think I could read you about that. Uh -huh. Epictesis, uh, isn't um, it? Yeah. Um, if I can find the page. Um, oh, yes, this is about... This is, this is meant to be a sort of completely uh, rational and disarming way of looking at death. It sort of doesn't work for me. Um, uh, and it's, uh, you know, the, the, the first one of the most brilliant ways in which it's, um, it was uh, put into words was the, the, the bird. It's uh, yes. as in a yeah. bead or it's something like that. Bead. Yeah. Yeah. The bird flies through the in, into hall. the window, into the banqueting hall, and then flies out the other side, and that's mm. what human life is, is about. And mm. I, I, you know, I have this pedantic side to me which says, yes, but it, when it goes out of the banqueting hall, it is still at least flying. <laughs> <laughs> we ain't going to be flying. <laughs> anyway, so this is, this is my objection to that line of thinking. Um, that medieval bird flies from darkness into a lighted hall and back out again. One of the oh-so-sensible arguments against death an anxiety goes like this. If we don't fear and hate the eternity of time leading up to our brief moment of illuminated life, why, therefore, should we feel differently about the second spell of darkness? Because, of course, during that first spell of darkness, the universe, or at least a very, very insignificant part of it, was leading up to the creation of something of decided interest. 
plaiting its genes appropriately and working its way through a succession of ape-like growling tool-handling ancestors until such time as it gathered itself and spat out the three generations of school teachers who then made me. So that darkness had some purpose, at least from my solipsistic point of view, whereas the second darkness has absolutely nothing to be said for it. Um, I read that to my pu first publisher when she interviewed me about this book. And I, I, of course, you see, I find that argument completely convincing. And I looked at her and said, so are you convinced? And she said, no. <laughs> this is one of those things that logical argument often really applies to. Um, though that also reminds me that it is possible to fear the previous darkness. And in Nabokov's autobiography, he cites the case of a chronophobiac, as it's called, who is a man who's thrown into total panic by seeing um, photographs, but also um, home movie footage of his mother before he had been born. And it, 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 it threw him, uh, the world without, which didn't contain him before he arrived, threw him into a state of panic and terror uh, as much as um, it does in the, at the other end of things for some of us. Yes. Does anything console you for this? I mean, you clearly enjoy life. I clearly enjoy and life, you're not, yeah. you're not wasting it by just um, resenting what's not going to follow it. No, and then, you see, that's the other, that's the other thing that you, you argue to yourself, uh, but, I, I, but don't convince yourself by. You think if you have a true understanding um, that the days of wine and roses are going to come to an end, mm -hmm. that the roses are going to fade and be thrown out, and the water in the jug is going to be thrown out, and the jug is going to be thrown out, and that the wine will madderize, then um, your seizing of the moments of life and your enjoyment of uh, people and art and landscape and things like this is, that, is, is the sharper, that it's the squeeze of lemon, it's the, it's the dash of salt that brings out the flavor of life. But, and that's, I occasionally like to think that, but I don't know whether I believe it. Um, in that if I look at friends of mine who either don't fear death at all because they don't think about it, either, either ones who don't think about it at all or the ones who think about it but don't fear it, or, or my religious friends, of whom I have a few, I don't think that they... I can't say that when we go to a concert or go and look at a... In brackets, melancholy. We were talking about melancholy. Um, this is a commercial for the um, uh, Impressionism in Scotland show. Um, there is a very, very, very great painting there by Degas, which is on loan from the Phillips Collection in Washington, which is just called Melancholy. And it's one of the most, one of Degas' greatest paintings. Very tiny, it's about this big. And it's, and it's in those sort of chestnutty reds that he does so brilliantly. And it's a woman in a chair, but sort of canted over around to sort of the back with her hands like this. And it's the most perfect study of melancholy I've, I've ever seen. I, I visit it every time I go there, and now it's here. So don't, please do not miss. Where was I? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it was beautiful. Let me um, just, uh, a wee quick final one. Um, uh, it's a brave thing to, to write about the thing you fear most, to look into the abyss and see it sneering back at you. Uh, writing the book, has it um, made you feel braver towards death, or do you still feel the way you did before you actually wrote the thing? I feel exactly the same as I did before, and I didn't expect to, any change to, to occur. I mean, I, I, I very much don't believe in the therapeutic school of literature. Um, I believe in therapeutic li literature in very, very narrow uh, circumstances. One of the 
people who comes into the book a lot is the great French diarist Jules Renard, mm -hmm. 1864 to 1910, who was very good on, 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 um, on death. And there's one full entry in his diary which goes, the beauty of literature. Uh, he lived, sorry, background. He lived in Burgundy. He, was, he divided himself between being a sophisticated writer in Paris and, and living back where he was brought up in the Nièvre, which is in North Valley. Um, rustic, uh, backward in his day, part of northern Burgundy, and he had a, um, a house and uh, usual stuff that goes with a house in the country in those days. I mean, a, a farm and stuff. So the century goes, the beauty of literature, a cow of mine dies. I write an article about it. It earns me enough money to buy another cow. <laughs> um, now that's an example of literature actually having a therapeutic use. Um, and I think in certain areas of maybe uh, misery lit, you know, you had a horrible life, uh, no one loved you, you write a book about it, it makes lots of money, people love you. I can see it might work in that response, but then <laughs> you, you also, as a sort of pu publisher or fellow writer, have to think that, that the sort of progression is just as likely to be you have a miserable life. You write about it. No one wants to publish your book. <laughs> You're even more miserable. Julian, thank you for a very cheering interview. Um, and I think I'll throw it over to the audience before I go and cut my wrists. I mean, can we get the, um, the, the lights up? And uh, there we go. Thank you very much. And please, uh, uh, any hands up? Anyone want to? Um, yes, there's one here. Uh, can you wait for a mic, please? Thank you. Hi. Um, you mentioned cheap nostalgia, and it just reminded me of something that George Eliot said about um, she, doesn't, she didn't believe that God existed, but she said that religion was still necessary. Is that something that you're alluding to? Uh, did she mean it was not necessary to, so it was necessary to society or to yeah. individuals? Yeah, I think to society. Um, it, was still, it was kind of a necessary evil. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't believe in necessary evils, you know. Um, um, uh, well, this was one of the sort of um, great fears of people who were disproving God. In, you know, the 18th century French philosophers would disprove God to their intellectual satisfaction, but would be... Um, would thought, you know, you, you better not pass this on mm. more widely in case, you know, the servant problem gets completely out of hand. Yeah. You know. um, that was David Hume's line. Yes. Um, and, but, but, you know, society... Uh, and, and it's as if every single village would then have their mass murderer and their bluebeard and their whatever. And yet society sort of struggled on. European society struggled on nonetheless. And um, I think, I mean, I'm not... I, I, the book is goes is is, an, is in in various places. You know, um, my amateurish novelist's approach to various um, technical disciplines. But so I'm not um, um, an ethnologist or a sociologist. But uh, it seems to, it, as I understand it, um, you know, the, the human beings in in groups tend to behave 
in rather similar ways, with or without religion, that, that, that altruism is, is something which is part of our human nature. Um, and so uh, I, think, I think we could try doing without it, you know. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people manage it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. But I think, I mean, try doing it without it as a state, not just as individual. You know, I believe in the decoupling of, of, of um, religion from the state. Uh. Um, just first of all, I would agree with you about the um, Degas piece in the Impressionist exhibition. My favourite piece there. That's fantastic. Absolutely exquisite. Um, I just wanted to ask you, I've just been reading Richard's um, latest book, and he says that, um, um, thinking about the afterlife, that um, if you were, I think it was standing under a tree with Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> Or something that it, that that might be okay. Was that what you said, Richard? But even but even that would Paul. <laughs> Ask him. No, I mean, I have events tonight. You wrote the book. No, but what Come I'm on. saying is, she can't remember what you wrote in your book. I'm not going to be any help. He was just making some crack about um, if that were the afterlife. You know, if it were standing under a tree with Audrey Hepburn or something. But even that would Paul. So what would be what would you look for in the afterlife if you thought if it did exist? How would you like it to be? Um. Because that made me think again about, you know, would I really want it anyway? Because everything would pull eventually, surely. I, was, I, I, what, I don't, I, I haven't really okay, understood. Can that, you explain? Yeah, yeah. That, that. Uh, in, I've written a book. Yes. Um, which, <laughs> which also talks about some of this stuff. Yes. Um, and I'm agnostic um, about life after death, and I certainly don't like any of the prospectuses that have so far been offered about what it might be like. And one of them includes meeting Audrey Hepburn under a tree. That's from a oh, movie. It's right, not from the Bible. You have to point that out that's to me. Right, yeah, because you wouldn't know that. No, and, I wouldn't uh, know that. No. Uh, but, and the Bible stuff, uh, eternity is just an endless high mass with a long, boring sermon. A lot. Well, so none of that's no, very interesting. Well, my, but, yeah. but, uh, so I, I actually rather dread the thought of um, eternal life because uh, it could be eternal boredom and is there any way in which eternity could be done in a way that wouldn't have us longing for temporality again and an end yes. to it? Well that, again to quote Jules Renard he says at one point um, imagine if we found that there was immortality we'd want to kill ourselves every day <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think I know I think you know given time we could work immortality out um, We'd certainly I mean, have brother, a lot of it. My brother's instant response to it was, was to say, you know, he couldn't think of anything more depressing than a, than a lifetime of mm. talking to saints. I thought about this, <laughs> and actually I think, I think saints would be very interesting people to meet. You know, they had very interesting lives. They were rebels often. Uh, they had, Lived up they the had very interesting deaths very mm. often. Um, they were often highly educated. They were sometimes the only people who could read. They were idealistic. Um, Dom Perignon was a monk, let us not forget. <laughs> they knew, uh, the, you know, the clergy knew about having a good time. You visit those old abbeys, blimey. Um, so the food might be quite good. Um, and as long as I was never, ever reviewed again by Hilary Sperling, I think, <laughs> I think I could really look forward to enjoying eternity. Okay, any... Yeah, way up at the back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One oh. of the aspects that you haven't looked at yet is the, the theory of ghosts. 
Now, J.M. Barry's play, Mary Rose, is coming to the Lyceum in the autumn, and they're using the advertising line much to the effect that for a nervous person, it is possibly more frightening being a ghost than meeting one. Have you any ideas on the ghost angle? Um, Do you really want to talk about ghosts? I, I, I feel much more frightened by things in real life. Um, I went to see that film Man on Wire. Have oh, you yes. seen that? Yeah. About yeah. the Frenchman who walked between the mm. twin towers of the World Trade Center. And every so often, the camera will just go over the edge. Mm. And when he was doing his final walk, even though it only exists, there's no movie footage of it, which rather surprised me. I mm. thought they would have taken a movie camera up to the top, but they took a still camera. Just looking at still photographs of him lying, lying often on the wire. I just, my palms were, mm, you know. Mm. So I'd see off a ghost without any trouble, haven't you? <laughs> right at the back there, um, there, yep, yep. Thank you. I wonder, since you feel that it's all going to be over when it's over, is there any consolation in the idea that your, your written works will live on after you? Um, well, I hope they do. Um, it's what I would have wanted. <laughs> Um, but if you look at it in any sort of long, you know, they might live on for maybe a, a generation or two if you're lucky. This is the fate of most writers. Uh, it's, it'd, be, it'd be nice to think that, but I don't think it's any consolation against death. I mean, because you have to take the long view. Um, and the long view, which I quote in uh, the book towards the end, which is something I didn't really think about or realise, um, there, was a, there was a questionnaire, not a questionnaire, a, sim a single question sent to leading scientists about two years ago. And they, the question was, what is the one thing uh, about science that you most would want the general public to understand, that you think they don't understand? And Lord Rees, the astronomer royal, said, I think I would most like people to understand what a tremendous time ahead there is for our planet, that mm. we are the consequence of four billion years of evolution, but that before the planet dies in either heat or cold, whichever it's going to be, um, there will be another six million years of evolution, and that, um, that, that those the, the beings on whom um, the planet's light will go out in six, million, six billion years' time will be as different from us as we are from bacteria and amoebae. Now, those beings will not be reading Julian Barnes. <laughs> Sad, but almost undoubtedly true. Indeed, we may well have wiped ourselves out and there'll just be beetles chomping around on the surface because it's not the best and the brightest, it's not the most intelligent, it's not the most virtuous that survive in Darwin's universe, it's the most adaptable, most adaptable to the, what might prove catastrophic life conditions on Earth if we, if, well, we aren't going to get another four years of George Bush, so that's all right. <coughs> One there, and then there was a, a man down here. I think it was talking yeah, yeah, about... Yeah, yeah. You were talking about being with groups of friends. Mm, yeah. <laughs> talking about being with groups of friends, some of whom don't worry about death at all, and mm. some who aren't afraid of death. 
I would have been interested to hear what you're going to say about your religious friends. You were just about to talk about those. How does it feel being with them? Oh, uh, I, I, um, it's not different being with my religious friends um, from being with my agnostic friends or atheistic friends. I mean, I find them equal in um, virtue, truthfulness, fidelity, charity, or their opposites. No, it, it, um, I don't find, I find it interesting being with my religious friends because I have one religious friend who's, who's sort of, um, who's Catholic and who, who believes in heaven and he believes in hell and he's afraid that um, his four children who've been brought up in the faith and have left it will not be with him in the afterlife. And, you know, he does precise and woe-filled calculations like this. So I'm very interested in their, their view of what happens. Um, I don't find any social unease with being with religious people, if that's what you're implying. I spent a year once living with, um, with priests in France, and they were very good company, which makes me, you know, optimistic about the non-existent afterlife with all these... The Breton priests kept me going for a year, then the, all the saints and martyrs of the church would keep going for a lot longer. Uh, you uh, might and they end were up with a lot of Calvinist ministers. They were, no, 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 that'd be the other place. <laughs> Shame on you. Yeah. I didn't say that. I really didn't say that. And the I'm Scots, going. The uh, Scotsman's not here. And I'm going I'm to England this afternoon, I promise you. Sir, yeah. I apologise for elder brother, um, but do you feel that his attitude to your views on things is because he's your elder brother, or is he like that with everyone? Um, up there. Way up the back he's, he, I think he's like that with everyone. He, he was certainly like that with his, his daughters, they tell me. Um, I mean, he, he is... Um, I should probably explain that he dresses in a sort of 18th century costume. <laughs> um, he's always had his hair very long in a bow, but then he went to the brocaded waistcoats and the knee breeches and the stockings and the buckled shoes. He even wears it coming out of Tufnell Park Underground Station in London, <laughs> where it's just viewed on as some sort of, you know, some goth gone wrong or something like that. I don't know. Um, but he... Um, what else can I tell you about? Oh, my brother. Now, um, the, uh, I didn't, of course, vote for Boris Johnson as m mayor of London. Um, but um, I was subsequently thought, well, maybe it won't be a complete disaster because my brother, in an email to me at Bisco, said, I'd sent him some cutting from the newspaper or something. He said, Boris Johnson was by far the nicest of the 24 Tory MPs I taught while I was at Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, maybe, this, maybe it's not so bad. <laughs> up there, the final question somewhere up there, I think. Yeah. When you were writing your book, did you consider that if it was successful, you'd end up speaking about the death of your parents a lot, and did that influence you? Um, no, it was very weird. Um, I, first of all, my, my father died in 1992, my mother in 1997. So it's been a long time uh, for a writer. 
uh, you know, before I actually wrote about them. And certainly when, when they died, I didn't for a moment think that I would ever write about them, let alone in the way that I have. And um, there's something about writing that is very hermetic. Um, and, and the first time I was sort of on the stage and actually found myself choosing to read uh, a description of my seeing my mother's dead body, I did get a very curious frisson. I thought, what have I done, almost? Um, yes, there is, a, there is an element, because uh, I'm not generally a, either an autobiographical, let alone a confessional writer. That's not my aesthetic or my temperament. Um, but I'm also a novelist, which means that I can't get to general ideas except through individual people. I can, ideas always come with me attached to people. So that's why the book starts as a memoir and starts with the deaths that I know and experience best, which are inevitably those of my parents, and then broadens out from it. So there was no other way of doing the book, and I didn't consider not doing it that way. But you're right, it is, um, you suddenly think, is this what she would have wanted? <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, it occurred to me that one definition of a happy afterlife would be a long, sunlit conversation with Julian Barnes. Um, he's, he's made this book uh, immensely stimulating, funny, moving. Um, so there's a lot to be said for looking um, at the, uh, into the abyss of death. And if you do it as bravely and as fluently and as eloquently as Julian Barnes, it would benefit us all. Please thank him for an enthralling hour. Thank you.